As Jenny was saying, we've been traveling through our early stories of faith this summer, and when we left Jacob last week, he was on the run from his twin brother Esau. Their clashes started the day the boys were born. Esau came out first, and then Jacob came out holding his brother's heel as if trying to hold him back and get out front. After the boys grew up, Jacob unfairly bought Esau's birthright. But when Jacob tricked their father out of the elder son's blessing, that was too much. Jacob ran, and Esau set out to hunt down his brother. In another type of hunt, it was opening day of deer season, and game wardens put a sign on a certain highway that read, Check Station, 1,000 yards ahead. Halfway there, 500 yards ahead, past the sign, a road split off. Hunters with a clean conscience kept driving straight ahead. The hunters who were over limit or doubtful ducked down the side road. The check station was 500 yards down the side road. Since life can be unfair, we rejoice when cheaters get cheated And that's what happens in today's scripture narrative. Jacob, the trickster, gets tricked. As he's running from Esau, he's also running toward his mother's brother, Laban, in search of a wife. Laban receives him warmly. And after Jacob has been there for a month, there is this discussion of wages. And instead of Laban paying Jacob, Jacob has fallen in love with Rachel, as you heard, the younger daughter, and offers to serve Laban seven years for the privilege of taking taking Rachel as his wife. And this phrase was just too cute. We were told that those seven years seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. (sighs) It's romantic. Well, the seven years passed, and Rachel's father did not act lovingly. Since Laban's elder daughter Leah was not yet married, in a roguish twist, Laban brought Leah to the wedding tent at night. The marriage was consummated, and only in the morning did Jacob recognize and realize he had married the wrong girl. And we're encouraged to see the humor in this story because there's quite a bit. Most audiences rejoice when the bully gets his due or the cheater gets cheated. Sweet justice, we say. Jacob here, the trickster, got tricked. Now he has to work and wait seven more years to get the wife he wants. A little boy was riding with his father from New Mexico to Colorado for their first father-son fishing trip. The trip was about 250 miles, and every 50 miles or even less, the son was so excited, he asked his father, are we almost there? And the father said, well, they still had quite a distance to travel yet. So the son waited a few more minutes and asked his father again, sorry, son, we still have 100 miles to go. Well, about 50 more miles passed, and the son asked, Daddy, am I still going to be four years old when we get there? Waiting is hard for all of us. In our affluent society, many of us don't have to wait to buy what we want. We don't have to wait through a growing season because so much produce is imported. 
We buy time-saving inventions like dishwashers and clothes dryers and microwaves. We want the fast computers. We don't want to take time to save up money, and so most businesses accept Visa, MasterCard, or Discover. In contrast, in the city where I lived in West Africa years ago, there were all these unfinished cinder block houses throughout the city. And I learned that when people had the money, they would buy the materials to make the cinder blocks and lay them. And then the house would stay like that until they made enough more money to go buy more materials to make the cinder blocks and lay a few more. So they might have had to wait months or years. They're more used to waiting than we are. And the desire for the fast pace transfers to our spiritual lives as well. We know what we want, we know what we think is best, and we pray for that, and we wait, and we wonder, why does God not answer our prayers? Is God even listening? Is God really there? It's not a new spiritual concern. It's not just our society. All the way back in the Psalms, people of faith felt at times that God was not doing what God should do. Just a few little quotations from the Psalms. From Psalm 6, the people cry out with such panic, they can't even finish the thought. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror, while you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? And while we might wonder whether Jacob is having thoughts similar to these psalms, God is absent from the part of the narrative today. We then wonder whether the, narrative, the narrator is trying to tell us that when deceit is part of our story, God steps back. And yet, God always reappears and often evens out the situation. We didn't get to verse 31 in today's reading, but it says, when the Lord, this is from Genesis 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And similarly, in the Psalms that I read, the writer always recognizes God's faithfulness when we wait. And so here, a later verse from each of those Psalms. Psalm 6, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 10, O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. Psalm 13, but I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Regarding Jacob's waiting 14 years to marry the one he loves, Walter Brueggemann says, Jacob must wait. He has no trick to reverse the matter. He's used to being able to trick people out of what he wants. It didn't work this time. 
Did he ever ask, is Rachel worth the wait? We don't know. But I wonder whether God ever asks that about us. Is she worth the wait? Is he worth the wait? She is so frustrating sometimes. She just doesn't get it. Why won't he listen? Those are human thoughts. But I wonder if they're God's too. When a child requests baptism, the pastor and congregation have a choice to make. Is this child ready to be baptized? Or should he wait? Does he just like the idea of a little swim in the baptistry? Or is he ready to commit his life to following Jesus' ways instead of his own? Does she just want to be the center of attention, or is she really setting out on a life of faith? Should he wait? Should she wait? And I have to admit, I liked the part in Noah's baptism testimony this morning when he wrote, At first, I think I was kind of in the middle between the devil and God, but now I think I'm 99% God and 1% devil. Well, don't most of us wish we could be 99% God? Sometimes I'd settle for 49%. (laughs) And while we would like the percentage to be higher, we can't wait until we're perfect. We can't even wait until we're very good. If we waited until we understood everything, we would die first. We'd be like the elderly man who had a 2 o'clock doctor's appointment, and after three hours of waiting, he got up to leave. As he passed the nurse, he told her, I guess I'll go home and just die a natural death. (laughs) We move forward with however little or however much we know. Brueggemann, again, says, Two competitive sisters, a husband caught between them, and an exploitative father-in-law are not the most likely data for narratives of faith. But that is what this narrator has to offer. And by now, that should not surprise us in Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning, and of such stuff are beginnings made. Any time, any age, any stage is a good time for us to stop waiting and make a step of faith toward the God who always waits for us. Jacob knows that Rachel is worth the wait. God seems to think the same about us. Do we think the same about God? Let's pray. Help us, O God to wait. Help us to listen. Help us to follow when you call. And help us to enjoy the ride. Amen.